0: Hello and welcome to Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. All students of corruption will at some point have to grapple with the question of corruption measurement. In this episode, we have three experts: Professors Dan Huff and Elizabeth Daber Barrett of the University of Sussex, and Dr. Roxana Bratu, Senior Lecturer in Public Policy at King's College London, to provide an introduction to some of the main debates. They discuss what tools are available for measuring corruption both the well-known indices and some new approaches, and then some of the strengths and weaknesses of each of these measures. They also address the important questions of what users actually want from corruption measurement and where this debate should go next. We hope you enjoy the episode and thank you for listening. My name's Dan Huff. I'm Professor of Politics at the University of Sussex. And today we're going to be talking about something that anybody who has thought about corruption has probably uh, spent at least a little bit of time pondering over. And that is how much corruption is actually out there. Now, uh, most people will be able to talk to us about some of the big indices that exist some of the problems, some of the challenges around measuring corruption. But I think finally, we might have one or two interesting ways forward to give us some um, clearer answers as to how much corruption is actually out there. Now, to help me explain and talk through what that might mean, I've got two distinguished guests. First up, I've got um, Professor Liz David Barrett, um, who is Professor in Government uh, of Government and Integrity with us here at the University of Sussex. Um, hi, Liz. How are you?
1: Hi, Dan. Great to see you.
0: I should also add, you've got a second title as well at the moment. You? You're also head of global pro- the, the Global Programme on Measuring Corruption at IACA. That's a bit of a mouthful, but I think I've got that right.
1: That's right. Yeah. And it is a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, that's the International Anti-Corruption Academy in Vienna.
0: In Vienna. Good stuff. A great place to be full of coffee and cake. Fond memories of Vienna. Um, good, good. So Liz certainly uh, is a good person to speak to about measuring corruption. It's something she's working on more or less full time in Austria at the moment. Alongside Liz, I'm um, really pleased to welcome on board Dr. Roxana Bratu from King's College London. Roxana's a senior lecturer in public policy there. Hi Roxana, how are you?
2: I'm good. Hi Dan. Hi Liz, nice to see you.
0: How's life in London? All good?
2: Very good. Very sunny today, which is sunny. a surprise. It's not raining now. No, not yet.
0: <laughs> oh, <laughs> Fantastic stuff. Uh, and I should ask in Vienna Liz, I guess uh, spring may have broken out, right?
2: Yeah,
1: I mean it's yeah, really turned in the last couple of days actually and really feels very spring like.
0: It's gorgeous. Marvelous. Right. Liz, can can you start us off on this one now? we often say that corruption analysis is a relatively new field I'm not sure we should be saying that anymore really we've been going at this for 30 40 years as a as a discipline but right at the beginning people were talking about how much corruption existed can, can you give us a feel for where folks started and uh, where that's sort of led us over the last few decades
1: yeah absolutely so um i think you know probably the the best known measure of corruption these days at the moment, is the Transparency International Corruption Perceptions Index. And in fact, that's also largely where it all started. There were a few efforts to measure corruption before that. But it's really when TI started producing this Corruption Perceptions Index that this whole area of measurement really took off. And so that started actually almost 30 years ago now. And they've been, I think the first one was 94 and then 96. But since then, it's been an annual event. And that is a, it's a measure of perceptions of corruption, as it's it's said. And that was the reason that they started to look at perceptions was that at the time, corruption was still really quite a taboo issue. So remember, that's the time of the You know, that important World Bank cancer of corruption speech when they sort of finally said we need to talk about corruption. And also that's when the TI movement started really advocating on this issue um, at a global and country level. And so the, the measure was looking at perceptions because there was an assumption that people wouldn't be happy talking about their actual experience of corruption. And so what they tended to do is they used um, these experts to judge how much corruption there was in the country, focusing particularly on public sector corruption. And and then from that, they aggregated those um, different expert views into an index. So you got a score for each country, and you could compare among countries on that basis. And they've been doing that for yeah almost 30 years now
0: and that's evolved hasn't it liz it's because it's no longer the same scoring system as it once was right
1: yeah so it used to be um 0 to 10 um now it's 0 to 100 um so they've changed that they've also changed the methodology a couple of times along the way trying to make it more comparable um over time for example because one of the sort of early criticisms was that you couldn't track what was happening um, across countries over time um, so it's changed a lot but I think it was a really important and valuable contribution to advocacy at the time because it really got people noticing and talking about corruption and you know the press love it because there's always you know a good story about every single country so it's it's popular with the national press in lots of countries as well as globally
0: it's not the only game in town right there are other
1: sort yeah, of out there that
0: try and match it
1: yeah. There's been a development in that kind of indicator. So the World Bank started producing the worldwide governance indicators, which had a control of corruption indicator within that, as well as some other dimensions. Um, There's also things which are sort of going much more down to the level of surveys of experiences. So you get quite often surveys at the national level of not perceptions, but experiences. And in fact, the World Bank has been a leader in that as well, in that it produced these really good enterprise surveys that ask businesses about their experience of um, having to pay bribes and even ask them things like, you know, how much does a company like yours need to pay? So you can relate that to the um, the turnover of a company and how frequently do they have to pay and in what kinds of circumstances. Similarly, we've got, you know, Afrobarometer doing surveys um, in Africa, of um, experiences and and perceptions of corruption. So so that's a big area. And I think surveys are quite good for measuring the sort of prevalence of corruption, as long as people are not really worried about honest reporting. So they might not work so well um, in countries where people are are worried about or they don't trust the survey um, company. Then you've also got things like um, enforcement data, how many people are prosecuted for corruption for different corruption offences. Now, that's always been quite controversial because the issue there is if you get, if it looks like you've got a high number of prosecutions, what does that tell you exactly? Does it tell you that there's lots of corruption or does it tell you that there's really great control of corruption? So what you don't really know is what percentage of the actual cases of corruption are leading to those um, enforcements. And then you've got, you know, in the last sort of 10, 12 years, you've got this new area, which is proxy indicators of corruption. Um, so as you know, I've worked quite a bit with Mihai Fuzakash, who um, has developed these great indicators of corruption risk in public procurement based on red flags in the procurement process and outcomes that might indicate that corruption has occurred. And you also get now people... Measuring more sort of anti-corruption, as it were. So if you look at the Basel Institute, they've got an AML index looking at anti-money laundering. And that's really looking at what policies are in place that we would expect to be combating money laundering.
0: So we're not short of options here in terms of trying to measure corruption, Absolutely. whether
1: it's loads going on.
0: Yeah, but across countries or, or or within countries or proxy indicators. So measuring corruption by not measuring corruption, as it were. Roxana, what do you make of all this? What are the, what are the things that, that work in, in your mind and what are the where are the problem areas in all these different uh, measurement types?
2: Well, if anything, I mean Liz give a, a great overview of what we have right now. And if anything, I like you've just said, Dan, um, well not short of measurement instruments when it comes to corruption but like anything else in life no instrument is perfect so for example the corruption perception index and not only the corruption perception index but anything perception based as an index um, sort of puts it, it puts Uh, us in a sort of a catch 22 situation because obviously perception is volatile. Essentially the more you talk about corruption, the more perception of corruption you're going to have. So you end up in a situation where you might be uh, having a lot of anti-corruption reforms. A lot might have changed within a specific period of time but then the perception indexes don't capture that simply because there is this perception that there is high level of corruption which coexists with the high level of anti-corruption which is one of the greatest paradoxes of Um, anti-corruption industry, as we call it today, um, in a non-ironic way, if I may say so. Then moving on from perception-based indicators, we have, like Liz just talked about, we have experience-based ways of measuring corruption, and then we have attitudinal measures of corruption, because attitudes are a bit more stable when it comes to, to measuring. It essentially says what people might be doing in a certain situation based on their experience and on their perception. So they are a bit more stable than perceptions, but not as stable as experiences, really. So these are really interesting ways of measuring corruption. But it Liz already mentioned that it depends on the context. If you're not comfortable in, me- in expressing your honest opinion about the last time when you had to pay a bribe to a police officer, let's say, I don't want to put, you know, emphasis on police, but I'm just saying, in some areas of the world, that is considered a very corrupt institution. So for example, in Romania, 20 years ago, train conductors and police officers were considered a high risk category of people being corrupt, you know, then so so there is always this downside, you know, in, in using such measurements of corruption. And then when you move into sort of criminal justice records, essentially, they reflect what the criminal justice does, good or bad. It is what it is. So they don't reflect the true level of corruption, so to speak. Um, They just reflect sometimes how good the criminal justice, uh, how well it it, it sort of responds to this idea of anti-corruption, and also reflects the practicalities of the criminal justice system. Because sometimes for a prosecutor, it's easier to put a crime on money laundering in terms of proof and bringing evidence to court than proving corruption so they might not be at the level of proving it well enough so they just they need a conviction so they just do it like that And then when it comes to risk indicators I think these are great ways of measuring risks of corruption Of course this is not essentially saying what will happen it just says, you know, these are some red areas, red f- flagging the red areas and saying there is a higher risk of things happening here. And the, the sort of the danger with that, if I may say so, is the fact that you are, th- there is a tendency to overpopulate a specific sectors with anti-corruption measurements because of a perceived high risk of corruption. So, and then essentially the, the, the effect, the chain effect is that you discourage people from effectively engaging in that sector. So, for example, there is, this is a little bit abstract. So just to give you an example, the EU funding area has been over surveilled and is considered a high risk uh, when it comes to corruption, obviously, because everyone wants to protect EU citizens' money. So that's why this is such an important area for everyone in in the European Union. But in certain sectors, there are too many anti-corruption measures, which, for example, in Romania at a specific time has led to what we call signature strike. So essentially, mayors and people who are deciding, who are in a position of power to approve projects, refused to do that for fear that they would be indicted for anti-corruption, so, so so this is a sort of uh, reluctance to engage with an economic area.
0: So so, I mean, I'm quite sure with the proxy indicator phenomenon. I mean, Liz, Liz mentioned <laughs> that over the last decade and a bit, there have been there's been a lot of talk about proxy indicators, perhaps being a way forward. They're more specific. They often get around some of the methodological challenges of actually. Putting, putting your thumb on on the corruption itself do, do you think that they're, they're potentially the way forward Roxana is is that something that you 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 think we should be investing more time and efforts in developing
2: I really think Liz and and Michi, Michi Fazekash, have done great work in this area in terms of creating proxy indicators for procurement I think proxy indicators are good but they're not the holy grail of measurement. Um, again, like anything else in life, they have pros and cons. So, for example, it's very hard for me to to see how proxy indicators would be able to measure, let's say, legal corruption, which is, you know, corruption that's happening within a legal framework, but it's still morally corruption, you know? So <laughs> I, I don't understand how this would happen. Or, for example, I don't know how proxy indicators would be able, for example, to catch corruption or unfairness maybe not corruption in a classical sense but unfairness in in new technologies you know where new technologies are involved or new environments like the metaverse or facebook or you know twitter and that sort of thing so so maybe the way forward is actually creating specific indicators for various sectors that could go a bit more in depth in a specific area and would be very much in in um sort of in sync with the contemporary times. So you could change them, not only the methodology, but you could essentially adjust even the definition of the indicator. So essentially what I'm proposing is something along the lines of how financial sector works, you know, how they they produce new indicators all the time and, and they adjust the definition of the old ones to reflect the changes.
0: That's interesting. You know what we need, Roxanna? We need a global programme on measuring corruption. right? That that, that sort of thing. Liz, oh, hold on a minute. Liz, Liz is
2: working on that. Yeah. Is that. Um,
0: so moving forward then, Liz, I mean, I, I think lots of that is really interesting, actually. Uh, where do we go with this debate on measuring corruption? What, what, what in your experience, and you, you've got a lot of it, do we need to think about most and, and what areas are potentially the most interesting ones?
1: Yeah, sure. So, what we're trying to do at IACA in the Global Framework on Measuring Corruption is sort of twofold. So, on the one hand, we want to understand how are people actually using corruption indicators? What are they using them for? And are there things that they would like to be able to use them for, which they can't at the moment because they haven't got the right indicators? So, that's the kind of demand side. What's the demand for measurement? On the other hand, we're also looking at the supply side. So there we're trying to think about what are the gaps that we're not very good at measuring at the moment, and can we innovate in those areas by bringing together people who are experts in those particular specific areas who might be able to come up with better things, often thinking about, you know, are there new data sources coming online that we haven't used? Um, Could we encourage people to collect new kinds of data so that we would then be able to measure these things better? And so that's the kind of supply side of measurement. So that user focus, I mean, some of the things that Roxana said at the beginning there in terms of perceptions indicators, not very helpful for giving people feedback on whether what they're doing is the right thing. And we've heard this from quite a lot of anti-corruption practitioners, particularly people coming from anti-corruption agencies. And they'll say, you know, they find it a bit frustrating to get this one number for their country. Um, which maybe doesn't change much over time, when they're actually doing a huge amount in terms of anti-corruption reforms. And, you know, of course, you might well say maybe it doesn't change that quickly. Um, You know, maybe they're not being effective. But at the same time, it does seem like it would be useful for them to be able to capture whether what they're doing is having an impact. And essentially, the point there is that that whole anti-corruption Community and the set of tools at our disposal has become so much more sophisticated in the last 30 years. And so, you know, what we need now is not so much necessarily a tool for advocacy, which I think the CPI is still good for, but we need something that is also more detailed, nuanced, and that can really help people to work out what they need to do differently to be better at combating
0: corruption. So, if I had to ask ask you to to list the gaps. Where, where are the specific gaps? What, what what buzzwords would you throw at me? And I'm, I'm sure there are loads of gaps, and uh, none of these indices purport to measure everything, so it's sort of unfair to expect them to do so. But the, the main gaps would be,
1: yeah. So I think uh, a really important gap is around the sort of grand corruption side of things. So, and the problem here is that that's much harder to observe. Yeah. So. There's a good reason that a lot of our measures of corruption really focus on petty corruption and public sector corruption. And that's because that is the kind of thing where you can ask people about their perceptions and experience of it. And they're probably going to be you know, reasonably well informed if they've had to go to the doctor or they've had to get a some um, passport or some kind of permit or something from the state. So, so there it's, you know, it's relatively easy to observe that kind of behavior and get people to report on it. The trouble is that actually, if you again, if you look at the kind of global policy debate, we talk a lot more now about transnational corruption and about the role of enablers and of offshore havens in facilitating money laundering. And all of that is actually making it easier to do that really high level grand corruption, which is probably having a much bigger impact on countries. I mean, this is not to say that the petty corruption is not important, but yeah, the grand corruption is big
0: impact stuff. do, Do we need to measure that, Liz? I mean, I'd love to measure everything, but I mean, we we can conduct research on what's happening and what we might want to do without measuring corruption, can't we? Or am I I just, am I missing something there?
1: No, I mean, we can, but I think when you have um, measures of things, you know, they are good for incentivizing change, basically. And, you know, for me, that's actually the whole thing that's interesting about this whole world of measurement and indicators is that we know that people make decisions on the basis of these indicators. And... For that reason, it's really important that they're accurate. So if aid agencies are thinking about where they give money, if investors are thinking about where to invest, if credit ratings agencies are thinking about how to assess the risk in a the country, they tend to use what indicators are out there. And so then it's really important that they're accurate and they're not missing out on big issues.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I love the accuracy point as well. So I, I noticed in last year's CPI that um, so China, a country of 1.4 billion, uh, got 45 out of 100. The same as and Principe, which I've just Googled, has uh, got 223,000. And I, I've not been to and Principe, but I suspect it's not. It's got different challenges to China. Mm-hmm. And yet 45 is what they both got. So that, that strikes me as being OK, I can see why some people would go out there and, and use that information in ways that are probably not actually that sensible. Roxana, did you want to come in there?
2: Yeah, I I think um, so. It's something that Liz said prompted me to think about that. I I think we talk a lot about measuring corruption and what we can do in terms of measuring corruption more accurately and and you know measuring grand corruption and capturing change and you know including all these things. But I, I think. Um, it, I think it might be important to acknowledge the paradigm in which we are thinking about things, because basically we think in a very classical way. So we start from defining corruption, we then move to measuring corruption, and we then move to anti-corruption policies, essentially public sector policies. And and then we want to use measurement again to, to capture change, right? But by expanding our measurement, we essentially expand our very definition of corruption, because we've started to talk about many more things. We started to talk about, um, you know, money laundering and maybe organized crime and, and you know, transnational um, uh, flows of, of money and, you know, all sorts of other things. So I'm just wondering, this is a sort of a reflection point for all of us, really. Um, how do you think the very understanding of corruption can be captured by all these tools of measuring and, and especially the changes in, in terms of how we understand corruption?
1: Yeah, I'm not sure that it's changing the scope as much as giving us more narrow targeted tools for measuring different aspects of corruption. Um, So I think corruption has always been many things um, actually, the Centre for the Study of Corruption at Sussex has got, as you know, this nice um, definition that we've been working on. But also, you know, that shows how it really, how many different aspects of corruption there are, how very different they are in you know, different types of institutions and, and um, levels of government and in the private sector and et cetera. So how I see the the field of measurement developing is much more that it's sort of developing more narrow and targeted tools that are useful for specific purposes, rather than necessarily saying we're broadening out what we think corruption is. I mean, money laundering is a good example because, of course, money laundering is not necessarily related to corruption. Um, There can be other reasons for laundering money and corruption is only one of the possible kind of um, predicate offences that leads to money laundering. But at the same time, as part of that whole set of measures which are trying to measure how well countries are Not necessarily controlling corruption, but how much they're resilient to kind of corruption um, and the sort of facilitation of corruption. I think that's an important part of the picture. So if there's a need there to develop policy, then it's useful to have measures that can then inform that policy and provide an evidence base for what's working, what's not working, what we need to change, what can stay the same, what we need to do more of or less of, et cetera.
2: Right. Thank you. I was just coming from a point of view of if we expand too much uh, the interest area of corruption in terms of measurements and definition and public policies, then if everything is corruption, nothing is corruption, essentially. So so that's why I was coming from this very sort of yeah cynical almost point of view. Um, Dan, I think you need to say something. <laughs>
0: Oh, I can always say something, Roxana. But I'm, I'm fascinated with with the, the, the discussion. I mean, I was going to ask a, a slightly different question there. In that, I do think sometimes w- we beat ourselves up over uh, over how much corruption exists, and that, that I mean, I, I've lost count of the number of times I've read. People like Matthew Stevenson say, oh, there's so much dodgy data out there. Why are we even messing around with this this data? It's it's we just it's all, you know, the only thing we know about it is it's not right. And he's not saying that about measuring corruption per se, but a lot of the data that we find ourselves producing, you know, gets criticized. So I I get that. I also sort of get get the point that, you know, it's a contested concept corruption, and and they're really hard to measure. We know that. And yet, I can't help but think that, you know, things like democracy are um, are quite hard to measure as well. And yet I'm not sure there's the same sort of fierce debate about about how much democracy exists uh, as there is in the corruption field i'm not sure there's quite as much cynicism to use the word that you you mentioned there roxana i think people just sort of acknowledge and understand and accept that there are different types of democracy out there and there are different ways of measuring it and if you don't like this one you know, always go and create a better one that that type of logic is is sort of the norm in that area whereas perhaps in the corruption area, we've not we've not really embraced that and, and there's a lot of people who who don't don't really think there should be any massive effort put into measuring corruption at all. Now, clearly, you're going to disagree with that, Liz. You know, I, I read out your job title before. By definition, you're going to disagree with that. But but do you think there is something different about this contested concept, corruption, than, say, fairness or freedom or democracy or the other contested concepts that we, we all find so interesting?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question, Dan. So, yeah, I mean, it is really important to say that any measure is inevitably going to be imperfect. Like, there is no such thing as the perfect measure. And for that reason, I do think it's important to get a you know this more kind of sophisticated debate about what can this measure tell us and what can't it? What can we use this measure for and what can't we use it for? And I think yeah, you know, that's what I would call a kind of measurement literacy in a way, um, trying to get people to think more about limitations of different measures and to think about what's behind them um, before they they blindly use them. And uh, you know, one of the problems is that. media is not necessarily great at doing that. So you do get measures used in a quite simplistic way sometimes, which then leads to these reputational consequences. And so I think, you know, the reason that people get quite exercised about measurement of corruption is because it can have really important implications, um, you know, for countries, for organisations, etc. So I mean, there's that Nice paper by, I think, Olken and Panda from 2012 or so, and they look at the fact that Indonesia's score on the Corruption Perceptions Index has fallen. But they basically find that this is because there's a lot more discussion of corruption. And in fact, they've developed this great agency, the KPK, which is doing a lot more work to uncover corruption and um and so probably part of the reason that the perception of corruption goes up is because people are talking about it a lot more so i mean again that's showing that you know this has implications yeah and yeah you know, these it has consequences for organizations countries and and so it would be really important to to get it right and so i think you know that's probably partly why it's it's such a hot topic and so contested and and also because you know it is a bad thing, yeah, corruption. So I think when you talk about sort of degrees of democracy and, and quality and varieties of democracy, you know, there's much more sort of multi-dimensionality to that often and how people understand it, whereas corruption is, you know, pretty universally seen as something we want to avoid. But yeah, maybe if we go down this route of more targeted indicators, then we can get people to think about, well, you know, in a given country, you might have this area that is strong, but this area that's weak, and we can get people talking in a slightly less fierce way about it for that reason.
0: Yeah, and I follow that. I mean, from from where I am, in very general terms, that, that that the pursuit of perfection is often, you know, often leads you into places that are that are not very satisfactory. So, if perfection is your aim, you, you're going to struggle. And my, my analogy will always be: I play get football three times a week, Liz, and I am not Lionel Messi, right? And if I were to want to be Lionel Messi, then what am I doing? It's just a completely forlorn exercise because I never am. And that's not just because I'm 48. It's because I've always been a bit rubbish. Um, but the point doesn't stop me doing it, doesn't stop me trying to get a bit better, trying to get trying to improve in my own world so I can I can make steps forward and I still think like that even though I'm way beyond the age where I should be thinking uh, about that so surely the same logic would apply in trying to get a grip on corruption right we should just yep, try and absolutely. get a bit better without at what we're doing.
1: commenting at all on your footballing performance oh you can go there was sure amazing you, you could have been a pro as I had, <laughs> right <No.
2: laughs> um, if I
1: but um yeah I do think that's a big part of the picture and you know comparing countries I'm just not sure how useful that is really I mean if you're you know, if you're working in a country that seen as a high corruption country, is it useful for you to compare yourself to a country that's got a completely different institutional setup, um, and is maybe has been working on combating corruption for much longer. So I do think that being able to measure progress over time is where the need is. That's definitely what we're hearing from users. So yeah, I think that's the direction we should be moving in.
0: And I like the term measurement literacy. I haven't come across that one before, but that strikes me in exact, as exactly right in a whole load of different areas, actually. But certainly in corruption analysis, they need to understand what these measures are and aren't saying. And that's a pretty basic thing. But it does forever uh, uh, surprise me uh, that, that people don't really understand what the, the numbers in front of them are, are actually indicating. Roxana, if I could ask you. So if somebody's listening to this and they work, say, in the public sector or they or they work in the private sector and they don't know much about the academic background to, to corruption measurement challenges, where would you recommend they start? What what sort of literature is, is probably worth having a look at? Is there anything in particular, or is there an area that you think that this is one way where, where folks would need to begin, then they can move on?
2: So I think what I would recommend would be familiarizing oneself with the um, sort of the classical ways of measuring corruption, as in the CPI, the Corruption Perception Index, just going there and then looking sort of at the expert-based surveys and experiences and then moving into proxy measurements, I'm reluctant to recommend any one single piece of work because i don't I, yeah. I, I don't think that exists to be honest but but the only thing i would like to say is that whenever people want to know more about measuring corruption in general i think they should be aware that Corruption measuring corruption initially came about uh, from our own expectation of keeping the you know the public service at high standards, and that's why the initial focus was on this. And now we're slowly we've we've started slowly to move uh, towards the the, um, private sector. So just just bear in mind whenever you read any sort of measurements or any work about measuring corruption that this is where it comes from. Uh, so that's one idea. And the second idea I would like to put forward is I would encourage anyone to also read criticism of the contemporary measuring tools. Uh, and I'm sure Google search would do the job, but there, are, uh, there is excellent work about the you know, anti-corruption industry and how it has developed and how there is sort of a, a need to move forward in this area and keep measuring it.
0: Good stuff. Yeah. I mean, guys like Steve Sampson with an yeah. anthropological background yeah. plenty on how they don't think this is a particularly uh, useful way forward, just as there have been plenty of people who've criticised the the uh, attempts to measure corruption from other sure. angles. Liz, where would you start if, if folks wanted to, to to read a little bit more about this and and, and get some of the some of the newer angles?
1: Um, so it's a good review paper, actually, um, by Fuzikush and Ferrali, um, which is quite recent, which we could put in the show notes. Um, so we could link people up to that. And the other thing I'd do is just, you know, go and download the data and have a play around with the data, particularly look at, you know, a country, your country or a couple of countries that you know, and then try and work out how they got to that score um, and see what's behind it and ha- sort of have a dig around and think about, does this seem like it's accurate for your country? And just a final idea, there's a load going on at the country level. So um, in this research at IACA, you know, we have been talking to a lot of countries and you know, governments and civil society organisations about how they're measuring corruption. And there is an awful lot going on that is not necessarily seen, I think, um, on the sort of global stage, but some you know, really good innovative work on thinking about local corruption risks, so subnational level, which is so important, sometimes sectoral risks and um, and surveys and different kinds of um, local measures
0: that yeah i'd mean, i echo all of that i was going to ask as well this so in i'm going to just pluck a number out of the air in five years time what sort of outputs will it be from your program now again loads of hostages to fortune possible in that and in the answer you give to this but in general what what should we look out for from your program what what would be what would be the go-to things
1: so, what we're really hoping is to develop a tool that countries can use to assess their um, corruption risks and anti-corruption performance. So, something that they could use to see what's going on in different important areas of um, public administration and the economy. So, you know, focusing on areas that have got really high impact for corruption. And that's something that they can use. That will not just sort of measure how they are and how they're doing over time, but also give them a kind of actionable set of ideas about what they would need to do to improve.
0: Sounds like a, a really useful tool. And um, they'll be able to access that via IACA's portal website, or or, or is that all still of
1: this to be- is yet to be worked out? Um, so, then. yeah, yeah um, next step. So, we will be having a conference in. Late August, early September, where we sort of present this first year's um, findings and that we'll be moving on then to sort of developing this tool and piloting it in a few countries, getting feedback on that, seeing if it seems to be working, revising it you know, in a good academic process and then
0: yeah. rolling it out further. It sounds really interesting. I'm Looking forward to seeing where it where it goes. And um, it, it sounds to me like we should we should reconvene in twelve months' time or twenty four months' time to see to see what's uh, uh, what's become of uh, of all of this. Um, and that you know, I think we we can definitely do. Liz Roxana, thank thanks for your time. As ever, a really interesting discussion. Um, we are keen to hear the thoughts of those who've been listening. So do get in touch with any one of us if you've got comments or feedback. And yeah, thanks again. We'll see everyone. We'll see everyone soon.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks, Roxana.
2: Thank you, Dan, Lees. Thanks. Cheers, Bye.
0: Guys. Bye.